Hey everyone, and welcome back to Dear Baseball Gods. Today's episode, I've got a good friend of mine, former teammate, Division One baseball player, now working in real estate outside of Philadelphia, Tom Meany. Tom, how you doing, man? Thanks for having me on. Tom and I shared a couple different interesting memories. Number one, which we'll get into a little bit later, Tom was my catcher when I blew out my elbow the first time. And that was obviously a big moment in my life. And I'll never forget the, the conversation he and I had on the mound. But beyond that, uh, I was playing in Long Island last year, which is where Tom grew up. And you said you went to, to Ducks games as a kid, right? Yeah, I mean, growing up, we used to go to games uh, all the time. I mean, I remember seeing um, Juan Gonzalez. I don't know if you remember him. He, he came mm-hmm. and played, and we, we went and saw that game. And I just know that they've had uh, some really good players um, come through the, the duck system. And it was cool to see them because it was, you know, maybe 20 minutes from where I grew up. Yeah, and so I was playing for Long Island back in 2000, or not playing. I played for Long Island 2016, but in 2014 and 15, I played in the same league. So we played against them as, as the visiting team. And I remember it was, I think, like July or August of 2014. And I was with a, a friend of mine who's from there named Mike, and we went to a bar in Babylon, which is like a little uh, little shore town. And after the game, we were just sitting there at the bar, and me and Mike are just, just catching up because he was a good friend of mine. He and I played back in, together back in 2010. We were both pitchers. And I looked to my left, and there's Tom, <laughs> my, my college teammate, my college catcher, who I, I hadn't seen you in, in how long at that point, like six or seven years? Yeah, it was a while. <laughs> super bizarre, super bizarre. Like the, I, I knew exactly maybe two people on Long Island and uh, one's to my right. And then just coincidentally, the other's to my left. So that was kind of where Tom and I reconnected and we started talking about business and, and about sports. And, you know, we, you and I had kind of lost touch a little bit over after we graduated. And, um, you know, admittedly, we weren't like the absolute best friends, but we were we were friends. And it's just been really interesting as Tom and I kind of chat baseball, we kind of chat about business and some of the real estate stuff that you're doing now. And obviously your transition, you know, into married life and into, you know, getting off of strong Island. Right. So how's that transition been for you going from um, the deep accents of New York and all the personalities there down to you're living in a suburb of Philadelphia, right? Yeah. So we're, we moved uh, down to, to Philadelphia in 2014 uh, my wife was originally from this area, and uh, we we lived in right in the city of Philadelphia for a, a little while. And you and I had talked about possibly meeting up uh, then. I don't think we actually ever connected when we were there, but um, we recently bought a house, probably about forty five minutes outside of the city. Yeah. So, the burning questions I have to ask you: Number one, what's your favorite Philly cheesesteak? <laughs> That's a hot topic in, in Philadelphia. Um, you got Pat's or Gino's. Uh, coincidentally enough, we actually lived probably like three blocks away from, from both Pat's and Gino's. Um, to say which one I liked, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe Pat's? I, I can't even explain why. You know, cheesesteak's a cheesesteak for me. I guess anybody in Philadelphia might argue with me on that. But... Yeah, no, that's, that's blasphemy. That's ridiculous. Just like... <laughs> So obviously, when I lived in Long Island, I was getting acclimated to the culture up there, and things are are different. So one of the things, you know, if you just want to go grab a quick sandwich somewhere, you know, in any other place in the country, it seems like there's all these little chain restaurants. There's a lot of different restaurants, whatever. But in New York, 
everyone goes to the quote unquote local bagel, right? So can you talk a little bit about, cause it still confuses me to this day that you just drive around these little kind of crappy strip malls sometimes and just says bagels, like <laughs> give me the scoop on bagels. I don't know. It's, you know, I've been all over the country and I've had bagels wherever I've gone. And, you know, even living in Philadelphia here, I still say that Long Island bagels are the best. And I, re I don't know why. I mean, I guess they say that uh, it's how they're prepared with the water. I don't know if maybe that's an urban myth or anything, but all I know is they're the best bagels I've ever had. But like, and I, and I heard that myth too while I was there. And obviously, like, I, I, I like bagels and New York bagels are just way better than everything else out here in the midwest i think a couple th a couple foods are trash number one pizza pizza out here is horrendous uh i miss new york pizza with just a burning passion i i really don't eat pizza out here because if we're just being honest with each other it's terrible and then bagels are basically just pieces of bread like shaped into a ring so they're awful and not at all like you know new york bagels i mean i grew up on long island knowing new york city as the city uh, and then when we came down to Philly, it was it was cool because, you you know, you can walk around the entire city in a day. Yeah. And I know you've probably been been there and, and checked it out. So there's uh, there's definitely a lot of cool spots to go in, in Philly. Yeah. New York, obviously, that was one of my last cities on my list. Not on my list, but, you know, I've, I've traveled a lot playing baseball the last you know six, seven years. But, you know, I played I lived in Philly my second year with the Camden River Sharks. So Camden's right across the river across the Ben Franklin Bridge, which is a, a beautiful little icon there, this big blue bridge. And then as soon as, obviously, you cross the – that's the Delaware, right? As soon as you cross, cross the Delaware, you're in Philadelphia. I lived in Fishtown my second year, which most of the time when you're you're playing, you know, you live in a host family or you find a crappy apartment yourself. But I found a room with uh, this ex-Temple uh, lacrosse player named Lindsay. She was real cool. And so I ended up living in Fishtown. And so I lived in Philly for, you know, that – second six months I, I played ball out there which was pretty fun so I feel like I got a a good taste of the city because really like deep down I'm a city person but you know that's why you know Tom I'm a little disappointed that you didn't have a deeper a deeper name on your cheesesteak list because really if I'm being honest I think it's Steve's you know he's the prince of steaks quote-unquote and <laughs> have you had it have you had it at Steve's cheesesteak there's one in, in, in House Square no and, I don't think I've had Steve's. you gotta go there so if you're in the in the Wurtzee district you know shopping on Rittenhouse Square you gotta stop into Steve's they're open pretty late too so anyway that's my shameless plug I guess but so you know it was funny when when I came to college and you know you and I met obviously you, you're 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 younger than me so you were you're a sophomore when I was a freshman but just hearing you guys in your accents and you know our good friend you were Brian Duffy you were a I was a sophomore oh yeah, yeah, yeah that's right I'm older that's how being older works but you know tell me about how you ended up in in Maryland. So obviously I grew up 30 minutes from our, our alma mater, University of Maryland, Baltimore County. So my path to get there and getting recruited was just that, you know, I knew a guy who played there, you know, a close, a close friend of mine, he made the call and that was where I ended up going just as a walk on. But, you know, it was a local school that I was aware of, but how do you get from Long Island to University of Maryland, Baltimore County? Because I know a lot of kids, you know, as they're, as they're trying to get recruited to play in college with any sport, Sometimes you just wonder, like, you see a kid from South Dakota playing in Minnesota, and you're like, what? You know, it's like, how did you, so how did you get from Long Island to Maryland? When I played baseball, I think anybody in the baseball community kind of would agree with me that the high school team that you play on doesn't necessarily um, bring 
bring college coaches out. They do to a certain extent, but it, it all kind of focuses on the summer team that you play on. So I played on a pretty good team that we traveled all over the country, and we ended up in Maryland a few times, and we actually played at UMBC on a, a few weekends. So I guess I got the exposure from from the coaches at, at UMBC, and they, they saw me, and uh, we were in touch then. I I always had a goal to play Division One baseball, um, but at the same time, I always wanted a chance to, to play. So I knew going in that UMBC wasn't in one of those top-tier uh, conferences throughout the country. So UMBC seemed to be a, a really good fit. And, you know, in hindsight, looking back, uh, I did get some playing time early on, which is kind of what I wanted in the end. So I was really happy with the the choice of going with UMBC. And, you know, I met guys like you and, and a bunch of the other guys on the team that, you know, I still talk to every day almost. Yeah. So what other schools did you have on your radar? And as you kind of went through the process, because again, I think this is a great topic for young kids who are trying to think through, you know, what's, how big do I go? How small do I go? Like, what's, what's the good fit? Like, what were some other things that you were considering and what other schools did you have, you know, in your, in your mix? Um, it was probably a, a few more local schools, um, that were on the Island and just off Long Island, maybe into Connecticut. Um, Stony Brook being one of them, they were, they were in the same conference that we were in. A um, couple Division II schools uh, on Long Island, CW Post, um, Pace, which is just off Long Island. So there were, there were a handful that I looked into. But for me, I kind of always wanted to get off Long Island. I wanted to be further away from home, but yet close enough that it wasn't too long to get home if I needed to pretty quickly. So Maryland seemed to be a good fit. Um, and you know, that's the route that I ended up going. Yeah. So why did you want to get off Long Island? Was it your goal to not spend the rest, spend the rest of your life in New York or what did you kind of see at that point? Obviously when you're a kid, it's, it's tough to kind of predict the rest of your career. But when I give kids recruiting advice, I say, Hey, if you want to live the rest of your life in California, then maybe we need to consider some California schools, you know, going to college. And likewise, if you do want to live in California for the rest of your life, maybe you shouldn't go to school in, you know, Ohio because it's going to, that's where you're going to develop more roots and it's going to be tougher for you to kind of find your way out there. Yeah. I guess looking back, maybe when I was 16, 17 years old, I never really thought of living anywhere other than Long Island long-term. But I think mostly it was just, I wanted to be able to get away um, and live on campus, uh, get to know, you know, some people outside of my, network of friends um back back when i was that young so um i think maryland was a good fit they were you know coincidentally living in pennsylvania that that was another option but maryland's pretty easy you go right down i-95 and and you're pretty much there in four four and a half hours from where i grew up yeah i guess i kind of made it seem like it was a little bit farther than this but you're right it's a it's a pretty straight shot i mean you can jump on the amtrak if you want you know, especially from where you're at in Philadelphia, although it seems like if you jump on the train in Philly, it's like a one in five chance it'll derail before you get to New York, the way things have been. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was actually kind of nice, too, because I grew up really close to a small airport on Long Island, so I could fly southwest in 45 minutes and be down at, at Baltimore's airport and, you know, get picked up and, and back in school in, in no time. Big question here. Why not Stony Brook? Because Stony Brook's a great team. Obviously, it was it was local. And I know you said you want to get off the island. Did you have any of those ties to play? Because 
you know, for me, I felt conflicted. Obviously, I didn't have many options when I was getting recruited. But as I, you know, as I work with kids up here, a lot of these kids have options. And, you know, they could stay local. They could go farther away. Did you feel like playing on the road was more exciting for you? Did you kind of just want to see the world? I mean, say you got a really great offer from, like, the great local school. You could play in front of your family and friends all the time. Did that have more or less allure than playing kind of, you know, far enough from home where you're almost a little bit of an unknown? I think Stony Brook was always an option that I kept, but but Dan, I, Stony Brook was maybe 10 minutes up the road from where I lived. And I mean, some of my best friends played on that team, so it would have been the easy route to go. Uh, but I think coming into the end of high school, I just wanted something different. And I think that going down to UMBC and off Long Island out of New York was was pretty much the route that I wanted to go. And so what did you, uh, how did your majors factor in and, and what did you end up, uh, what was the degree you ended up graduating with? I got a degree in economics. I was <clears throat> always a numbers guy. Um, so that was kind of the the natural easy major, I guess for me. I, I wouldn't say it was a really an easy major, but just because you know, I was a math heavy guy in, in high school. I think um, I enjoyed doing that. And the workload of playing a sport in college, I wanted to have a, a major that that I kind of enjoyed doing while also playing baseball at the same time. And let's talk about that a little bit for a second, because I remember, so there were two, uh, they're actually twins in high school. These really smart, really athletic kids uh, named Adam and Andrew I went to high school with. And one of them went to, I believe, Harvard to play football. The other one went to, I think, Princeton or Yale to play. So again, they were like a pretty high-powered academic family. And I just remember having this conversation with them where I said, man, how, how do you balance, you know, Division One football with your studies? And they were like, dude, Division One baseball is way harder. I mean, think about it. You guys play 60 games in your spring season. We only play 12 or whatever it is. You know, I'm not a huge football guy. But how did you balance, you know, getting your degree and getting good grades? And I think a lot of kids don't understand just how rigorous it is to play division one softball or baseball because the game schedule is just outrageous you know you play what 60 games in like 75 days something like that so what were some of your tactics to you know to to keep academics first and if not first but just like you know 1a 1b where you still were aligning yourself well for the transition to the you know the real world that all of us face at some point playing a sport college you're kind of working a full-time job as well as taking full-time classes in school so very quickly on, we learned that scheduling was really important in our season. I mean, we, we were waking up at 5 a.m. to go train and run and, and all that, and we were getting in four or five hours before we even started classes that day. So we had really long days, and you really had to be good about prioritizing what was important. And looking back on it, um, I think it set me up for even after school and getting into business was – if you really want to get something done, you have to schedule out um, what your priorities are to make sure that you're completing those and, you know, I guess becoming a success. Yeah. And I, you know, our coach, John Jankashe, I think at the time, a lot of us kind of laughed him off at just how much he talked about the value of sports being the next phase of our lives. Not so much this phase, but the next phase. He harped all the time on how employers loved seeing college athletes. And we weren't really sure if that was true or not. But I think when you kind of talk about some of the characteristics that, you know, college athletes have, I think that's definitely true. And he talked about just how 
his ultimate goal was to build character in all of us and that who we were as people and our work ethic and all that stuff was by far the most important. And I think when I say we kind of laughed it off, I think everyone knew that was true every time he said it. But I just think we always were like, eh, you know, I'm going to go pro. Like baseball is still my number one. You know, school sucks. I mean, if we're all just kind of being honest with each other, I'm still I'm still confused when people are like, oh, yeah, I love school. I love learning. Like I love learning, you know, but school uh, was always just kind of boring, right? Like does anyone – did you ever love going to class? Like, oh, I can't wait to sit there at 8 a.m. and, and no. listen to lectures. Like, no, but, you know, we all realize that there's – those parts of life. And I think sports are also a great metaphor for that where, you know, I, I talk to kids all the time, like the way I got better at pitching over these last three, four, five years, it wasn't that I got like physically bigger and stronger. Cause I got physically big, as big and strong as I needed to be when I was like 22, 23, I got better because every time I threw a ball, you know, catch game number 10,001 of my life, I was always focused on every single throw, trying to make it a little bit better than the previous one. So even even if I was just throwing 45 miles an hour to a partner, it was important. And that tedium, and you think about Olympic weightlifters, how many snatches and clean and jerks and, and squats they do in their life. It's it's a very small grouping of exercises that they do that they dedicate their lives to. They just do it over and over and over and over again. Same thing with throwing a baseball, swinging a bat, hitting a volleyball, shooting a jump shot, like all that stuff. It's when you really think about it, it's incredibly tedious work, right? And practice sucks. Practice is just like class to me. Practice isn't fun, but you do it because you enjoy the, the end result, right? And so... Yeah, and to, I guess to go back to what Jenk said and how we always laughed it off, and that that's really spot on uh, because as baseball players, we wanted to win. We wanted, you know, the stats, you know, our stat line, we wanted to be the best in the conference. You know, we wanted all conference um, but looking back on it, I'm really grateful to have Jack as our coach and telling us that because I can't tell you how many times I've thought about it after the fact that we were playing baseball and yes, we wanted to win and compete at a high level. But at the same time, we were preparing ourselves as men, as he always used to say, yeah. uh, to, to get better. And, you know, I've seen in business and, you know, the, the few things that I've done after school um, that employers really do like athletes and the work ethic that athletes have. And we learned that in college and, you know, it was, it was great. And I'm really grateful to, you know, have that experience at, at UMBC. Yeah. You know, and as I've been making this transition, just having, you know, recently come to terms with retiring from baseball finally. And, you know, one of the things I, I don't know who I said it to recently, but I just kind of remarked that like, I know how to be good at things, you know? So, I, I knew how to be good at baseball for all these years and I kept improving my ability to be good at it, which is kind of weird, a weird way of putting it. But now that I'm transitioning into the real world, I feel like I keep gaining steam because all of those things, you know, the way I used to assemble stepping stones from my starting point to my new goal, you know, whatever it is, you know, I have a new problem, I have a new, you know, injury or I got to fix something in my game. I always had a process from getting from start to finish with it. And now that I'm transitioning into the real world, trying to figure out like what my next step is, what I want to be good at, you know, what I want to accomplish. Cause you know, you and I have chatted about this recently. Like I, I don't really know what the next 10 years holds for me. There's a lot of different things that I'm interested in and I'm finding like new things each day. But I think the thing that sports have provided me all these, you know, past 20 years is that I'm, I'm doing well already at, 
applying myself towards those goals. So, you know, every day I think I'm accomplishing something. I'm, you know, we're, we're talking on the radio here. I'm getting better at that. We're, I'm writing my book. I'm starting to get deeper into analytics and baseball because I'm interested in that. And I, I can see that that's kind of the wave of the future. And there's all these different avenues, obviously with running our teams. And, you know, like you said, you definitely learn that discipline being a college athlete. You learn, I got to get out of bed. I got to make sure my homework is done by 2 PM because I practice from two 30 to five. And then we're getting on a bus and we're going to go overnight and we're going to get in at midnight in New Hampshire. And, you know, then I got to pitch in the morning. You know, you, you figure all that stuff out and you learn to, to work with a deadline. You learn to work with the team. You learn all that stuff. You know, and I, I don't know, did, when you did group projects in class, did you feel like you operated differently than some of the regular students? <laughs> to a certain extent, yeah. And it's not to put us on a pedestal. It was more just like, again, we were just kind of like used to working with other people. And I felt like sometimes, in, and you know, I was a philosophy major and a psychology major, so we didn't do group stuff very often. I mean, it was really just like, hey, we're going to think about trees and let's philosophize about this and that and the other thing and you know here's you know the the 10 page paper you need to turn in for your midterm you know so there wasn't a whole lot of group collaboration but when I took like an entrepreneurship class when I was a senior all that kind of stuff and I just remember doing some of these group projects and I got the feeling that a lot of these people I was working with didn't interact with other people nearly as much as as I did and I'm not a super social guy I mean I, I kind of am now but you know, it, it just was like different, like they hadn't done that before. And I felt that a, a bunch of different times. Obviously, there's the whole spectrum of people. And, you know, I, I did group projects with people who are more social than I and were just great. And they were natural leaders. And they, you know, but at, at the same time, I felt like a lot of times academics doesn't doesn't prepare you well to work within a group. No, I would agree with that. And looking back on some of these projects that I did, I, I guess I took a leadership role without even realizing uh, that I was doing it and kind of going along with what you said is, you know, other students might have been the individual role put in a, a group setting. Um, and it was just natural for us being a part of a team and playing baseball to, to just take on that leadership role and coordinate when things needed to get done and, and who needed to send what. And I think it just came natural to us to be able to do something like that. Yeah. So in that entrepreneurship class, I remember we had this big project because we had to make a business plan and all this other stuff. And you know, what most of the groups ended up doing, turning in their final paper for it, and we had a presentation and a paper, you know, and a bunch of different things. But what most of the groups did was they had five kids in a group, all five wrote a chapter, or they wrote a page or whatever. And the teacher docked almost all those groups because of that. And he remarked that, you know, one of the things that's important is having continuity, having like one voice. So one of the things that we did in our group, and no one told us to do this, but we decided, and I kind of led that because I, I did a lot of writing in my philosophy classes and my psychology classes. I was like, look, you know, my contribution will be, I'm going to write this whole thing. So you guys just all give me the info from your sections and I will write it all myself and, and type it out. That, that'll be like my big chunk of this project. And so we did. And so it just flowed really well. Right. And, you know, just like things like that, where I don't know that anyone else was going to jump on that grenade. And that was just my skill set. I didn't like doing a lot of the other stuff that some of the other kids were interested in, like doing some of the research for our, our product, uh, you know, for our, our product. And, you know, everyone has different skill sets. And even like with my business now, my partner, Lucas, is all of our graphic design. He's also a very good writer, but I just sort of take the lead on, on writing. So when we make marketing emails and, and literature and all that sort of stuff, I just usually take the, take the, the words and he takes the, the pictures. But, you know, it's, it's just one of those things where, 
like you said, you just feel like naturally, like, okay, hey, guys, this is what we need to do. Why don't you do this? Are you comfortable with that? I'll take this. Are you okay handling this? And like you said, I, I don't think a lot of times you even realize you're doing it, but you're faced with that every day as an athlete where you have to work together, you have to get things done, and you have to work collectively as a group. And sometimes you have to be the bad guy and tell people what they don't want to hear. And that's the hard thing too, where it's like, hey, no, like this isn't good enough. Like you need to be here on time. You need to do that. Like you need to do this. And and that's what it kind of where becoming a leader is difficult because you're not always popular when you're in a leadership role, right? Yeah, of course. I mean, <clears throat> I've always heard uh, to be a leader, you have to put yourself or at least become comfortable being uncomfortable. And I think uh, to what you were just saying, to be that leader, you're going to have to do things that aren't ideal or, you know, don't you don't want um, to do in order to get the job done. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes it means, you know, bugging people a little bit about their deadline, like, hey, or just sending something back, like, no, like, this needs to be edited again, or, you know, this isn't quite good enough, like, this is unclear, like, I need this, I need this better, and, you know, we have, we have some interns, and I end up preaching to them more than anything, just attention to detail, so, like, if they don't vacuum the right way, like, I get irritated about it, and I'm like, look, if this was your gym, like, would this be good enough, you know, if a parent walks in, they see, you know, huge spiders, <laughs> it's like, right, right as they walk in, like, you need to vacuum those spider webs up, like, that was what we asked you to do. And we asked people to take ownership. And I think that's one of the things that sports helps is it teaches you ownership because you're part of that team. You know, all the reflected glory of a championship is shown equally on all of you. So if you want to have your hand in, in taking down that trophy and having a great season, you know, everyone learns to have ownership of your team. And I think too many employees, you know, we had, it was just like a classic example of this a couple of years ago. We had two interns from one from the East Coast and one from the Midwest. They both lived here for the whole summer. And one of them, if you walked by a piece of trash in our gym, he would keep walking. The other one, if he saw a piece of trash on the ground, he would grab and he'd throw it away. And we noticed little stuff like that. You know, like he took, the second one took ownership in our place. Like he wasn't okay with our place being a little bit dirty. You know, he wanted, he, he held a, our place like his place. And he took ownership in it. And he conducted himself, even though he was an unpaid intern, as if he was an owner, you know, and that was an important feature because if you have a company and you have a team, you want to make sure that everyone on it feels the same way that the CEO does, that they go down, you know, they have to go down together. Like if the ship sinks, like we're all going down with it, you know, Yeah. you know, and one of the things that my partner Lucas and I has, one of the things that's made us successful is that. So when he approached me back in 2012 about becoming partners, I told him, I'm like, I want to make, I want a partner. I don't want, I don't want an employee. So if you want to be in this with me, you know, we need to be at 50, 50. And obviously I had, I had purchased everything. And so I was like the quote unquote equity shareholder, I guess, because I had invested everything in the company. He was coming in with, you know, no money, no, none of that with it, but I needed a partner, someone who was completely invested, who we were going to win, we were going to succeed or fail on our, our, our efforts. And, and we'd had this conversation a bunch of times as we evolved as a business, as we took on more risk, as we moved to a new facility, that if we go down, that's it. Like, there's no backup. You know, our wives, we don't have wives, so they don't have jobs. Like, our fictional wives, <laughs> did I say that our fictional wives don't have jobs? Let's talk about the mentality of, like, of sports. I mean, it's not life or death. Like, people talk about 
you know, going into battle and all that stuff. And it's not, but for me, it feels foolish and cheap to compare sports to, to battle or, you know, to the army because, you know, like my brother-in-law is in the military and it is life or death for him. Right. But it's not for us. But I think to really get what you want out of sports, you have to have that sort of life or death mentality that it means so much to you that it hurts when you don't do well. Right. And that hurt is kind of what makes it great when you succeed and it, it drives you to, to achieve more. I mean, would you kind of agree or how did you feel when you played? I felt that if I didn't put in the work leading up to the game or um, our conference tournament or, or anything like that, if I didn't put in that work to, to get the results that I wanted, then it was a failure for me. And I can almost kind of correlate that directly to business now is being a self-employed uh, business, if I'm not doing the right things uh, and you know I wake up and I'm not putting in the work, it's going to be that life and death. I'm not getting that paycheck and I'm not going to be able to support my family. And, you know, I don't have a fictional life. She's real and she has <laughs> a real job, but having a house now, there's a mortgage to pay and we got a kid on the way. And so that's kind of why I think baseball of putting in the work to see the results on the field is just as the same as putting in the work for, for business and, and seeing the result in the form of a, a paycheck or, you know, you're helping out that many people. Uh, in a given month or given year. Yeah, you know, one of the things that bugs me, and maybe it's just a it's a unique perspective because I've been a lifelong athlete, but, you know, I, I read some of these, like, motivational books once in a while, and I'm not into them, but I want to be, like, one of those speakers, and I want to talk to people, kind of like in the way that you and I are talking now, but I read some of these books, and it just seems so fluffy and this, like, rah-rah, like, oh, every morning make your bed because you feel accomplished. And then, you know, write down three things you're thankful for every morning. And I just think that's a bunch of BS. Like, I think, I don't think that works for people. I don't have evidence that it doesn't. Maybe it does. Maybe that's what, why everyone's better at everything than me. I don't know. Maybe that's why all these millionaires are millionaires because they make their bed in the morning and they write down how happy they are. But I, I, <laughs> I think in the end, you just learn that kind of grinding things out is the way that you, that you succeed. Like, it's not all this, like, oh, I got to motivate myself. Like, no, just get up, get out of bed and sit down and do it. Right. I mean, just like with schoolwork, like I've never been through medical school or law school, but I've heard it's extremely difficult, obviously. And I don't think those people are like rah, rah and cheering themselves on. I think they just get up and they, and they force themselves to open the textbook and put in the work. Right. And I think that's one of the things sports teaches you. I mean, you had to pass obviously like real estate licensing exams and all that sort of stuff. And and beyond that, I mean, all these licenses are pretty basic, right? I mean, I took my real estate license when I was in college. I'm not sure if you knew that or not, but I had a, a good family friend who was in real estate, and he just encouraged me to increase my knowledge based on it. But once you pass that test, I mean, for you to be as good as you want to be in the real estate industry, you probably had to invest way more time learning just beyond that, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> to look back and, and see the tests that I took, I couldn't even tell you some of the answers to them now. <laughs> I don't know if I should be saying that, but... Once you pass that, it's all, you know, boots on the ground and make sure that you're putting in the work, uh, meeting people um, and becoming an expert in your market and what it takes to, to complete a sale. So um, to go back to what you were saying, I, I do a lot of reading myself um, and, I, and I agree with you along the lines of what you were saying. But I, I remember reading one quote that said something like successful and unsuccessful people uh, they don't vary greatly in their ability, but they vary greatly in their desire to reach their potential. And I think that kind of goes along with everything that you've been saying is 
you know, you got to want it deep down to succeed. And the whole baseball business uh, correlation between that, you know, that can be applied to both both sides. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I just remember that day. So it was we were in Farmingdale, New York. You know, we were in the conference tournament. And, you know, UMBC, historically, they had some, some pretty good years. I think it was in, like, the early 2000s. But when you and I were there, we weren't a winning team for the most part. But you and I were also part of one of our best seasons on record there. So we made the conference tournament our that was your junior year, right? My my senior year, my fourth year. And, yep. you know, I was our number one pitcher. I started our first game there against Tom Kohler, who's in the big leagues now. And I just remember, like, that was, you know, I've been having form and elbow problems all that up to that point in that season. And I was feeling a little bit healthier that game. And, you know, it was, it was late at night. It was dark. And it was the sixth inning. There were two outs. And there were, like, 15 scouts in the stands. And, and let's be honest, like they were there to see Tom Kohler. They weren't there to see me. Tom was you know, low to mid nineties. He was really good. Obviously that's continued for him, but you know, I was there. So I was pitching against him. The Raider guns were still on me, you know, and I had a friend in the stands and he was telling me how they were taking notes and I was looking good. And I was, you know, like 88 to 90. But so in that sixth inning with two outs, I just, I threw that curveball and I felt this like vibration through my elbow. And I just remember looking off into the distance and I was like, I've never felt that before. And I don't know what's going to happen next. And you were my catcher. And no one at that point, I think, knew what was going on. And I threw my next curveball, and I was terrified. And it felt the same. And I was like, okay, well, it didn't get worse because I was expecting, you know, maybe my elbow, like, flies off into the stands on this next pitch. I don't know. So a couple pitches later, I called you out, right? And I asked you, do you, I mean, do you remember that much of that conversation? So it's funny you bring that up because looking back, what this is almost a decade ago now, so with our careers or whatever, there's certain things that stand out and others that kind of melt away those memories. But I actually remember vivid, vividly that night when you walked off the back of the mound and I just remembered like something, something's up. So you called me out and I don't really remember distinctly what we talked about or what I even said on the mound. I just remember that I knew that it was a defining moment for you. Um, Cause I knew that, you know, I could just sense that something was up with you and, you were hurting. So I, I felt for you that night. And, you know, it turns out that, you know, you threw out your arm and led to a surgery and, you know, kind of everything else leading up into your career. Yeah. And it was, it's really weird how intertwined I am with the, uh, the Long Island. But so there are a couple other players in that, in that scene that night. So the hitter who was a bat, his name was Steve Marino. And I don't know, he was a good bit younger than you and I, but actually, actually, well, not that much younger. You didn't know Steve, did you? Um, a little bit, not not okay. So, much. so you knew him, but he, uh, yeah, I knew he him. was the hitter at bat, and I think I explained the story in one of my previous episodes. But he was the guy, and I, I had two outs. All I wanted to do was get off that mound without anyone knowing that I was hurt, because if it wasn't a major, a major thing, then the scouts don't need to know about it. You know, I just get healthy in a couple of weeks, and then the draft comes up, and then maybe I hear my name called, but. So he just kept battling and battling and battling, and I didn't know where the ball was going. And he finally like hits a grounder down the line that you know was a kind of a cheap double in my in my my book. But so a couple years later, Steve and I became teammates in Evansville, and I didn't know he was the guy until later on. So Steve, you know, I liked him. He was a good third baseman. He was a, a gritty player. You know, he was quiet. He was just like held his own. He was a very like he's the kind of player that you respect, and. After I got surgery that year, because I got a second surgery while he was my teammate, so he was kind of like involved or like in the picture with both of my elbow injuries. But yeah. I realized I went back to that box score that night 
And he was the guy in the box when I walked off the mound. He was the, the last one. I couldn't get him out. So it's just really strange the way baseball is a small community. And then, you know, the other guy at play, and this is another thing I kind of wanted to talk about was that I always had this tribal mentality. And I don't know if you had it, but I hated every other player on the other teams. Like I just, I would sit there and I'd be like, look at the way that guy wears his shoes. What a, what a jerk. How, you know, oh, that guy sucks. You know, look at his stupid beard. Oh, he's got a stupid tribal tattoo on his arm. I don't know why he uses tribal. Because tribal, the tribal mentality, for those of you who don't know, has nothing to do with tattoos. Although those tribal tattoos on your bicep are pretty brutal. But it has to do with the idea what, that. What tribe? Yeah. yeah. What tribe are you from? It has to do with the idea that, and this is, it's almost been like a protective instinct back in the day. Because when we were a tribal society, there was probably some value in hating your neighbor. You know, not in the, your neighbor within your tribe, but the the neighboring tribe, because you need their resources to survive. You try to take care of your own family and they're encroaching on you. But but anyway, so like the tribal mentality still kind of endures where we just tend to hate people who don't think the way that we think or who don't share similar values or, you know, like Yankees fans hate Red Sox fans. Like we're all people, right? So Red Sox fans aren't evil people. And Yankees fans aren't evil people. They just like different things. They they're in the, their own little their own little tribe, and it's weird that we continue to do this. You know that we we hate people that are of a different religion. You know we hate people who are Democrat or Republican. You know we just have we, we just bear these terrible negative feelings towards them solely because they don't subscribe to the same set of beliefs that we do, right? And I believe that as a, as a player, it wasn't a belief, but it was just that I just I just found the worst. I saw the worst in people that I was playing against. You know, I just like made up stuff. I'm just man, I hate that. Look at the way that guy runs. What a what a what an idiot. But and so there was a guy on your team, their first baseman, or I'm sorry, on Sony Brooks' team, the first baseman. His name was Mike Stefan. He was their big power hitter. I think he hit. A, I know he hit at least one bomb off me that 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 final season. I think he hit one actually that that game off me. But that game, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I think I think to right center, he he sent it off into the night. <laughs> All right, Tom. Thanks for rubbing salt in my wounds. But but yeah. So you can cut that out if you want. <laughs> <laughs> no, we'll give it in. But uh, but yeah, like I just everything about that guy, I just despised. Right. And so years later, when I meet you in that bar. You know, we arranged to get you tickets, and you came out to a Ducks game, and you actually got to see me pitch. And then we all met up, you, me, and Zach Clark, uh, who was another of our teammates at UMBC. You know, we met up at a bar afterwards, and you brought Mike Steffen to the game because he was one of your best friends, right? Yeah, Mike, uh, he's actually – I think I mentioned earlier that the Stony Brook guys, a lot of them were some of my best friends. So Mike's actually has been one of my best friends for a long time. He was actually the best man at my wedding. Um he actually introduced my wife uh, and me one night after college too. So I, I still talk to him every day. And, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that you, you hated him, but Mike was always the guy that, you know, I played with him maybe when I started at 12 years old and every team that we played on, the opponents just hated him. They never said a word to him. They just instantly hated him. Um, <laughs> so I, I think it was always kind of funny cause he's one of the, the nicest guys around, but um, I don't know. He was just a big competitor and, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that you, you couldn't stand him. Yeah, and so, you know, we had beers together, all of us. And you know, I met him for the first time that night in 2014 or 2015, whatever it was, in, in that bar in, in Babylon, New York. And he, like you said, he, like, he was a super nice guy. And I was like, dude, we played against each other. Yeah, I, like, hated, I hated your guts. It was just so funny. But, you know, I learned that over my career where, you know, the first time I made an all-star team, I, I ran to do a bunch of those guys. So guys that I competed against, you know, in pro ball. And 
that I just was like, man, I'm, I'm way better than that guy. And suddenly I'm on a team with all these other pitchers that I just mentally to myself just talk trash about and just hate it. And then one of them, this guy, Dave, who lives in Chicago, he and I are like still close friends. And the first time I'd ever met him, I competed against him for two years in the Frontier League. First time we met was in the All-Star game in 2012. And just like a nice guy. And then we were teammates in spring training. I got cut from that team, so we didn't, didn't last very long. But we were uh, like teammates again for two and a half weeks in 2014. And we just became fast friends. And it just it opened my eyes, you know, kind of having that like mixer where you start to get to know your opponents. And you realize that they're always the same as you. And I know kids a lot of times are afraid of moving to a new team and playing, you know, and leaving their friends that they played with for a couple of years and, and meeting all these new, new people. But you just make friends so fast and everyone's the same. It doesn't matter where you go. It seems scary at first, but you realize like the same personalities are on every team. And, you know, if you want to get along with people, you always, you always seem to be able to, right? Yeah. I mean, the more that you play and get to know other people, I think you realize that <clears throat> specifically playing baseball is, you know, you, you instantly already have a common like of, of playing the game. So once you get to know those people, um, you really come to find that you can generate relationships that, that, you know, last a lifetime essentially. Yeah. So as we kind of wrap up, let's, let's talk a little about what you're doing. So when you get out of the bed in the morning, like you want to be high up in real estate, what is it that you do specifically? Like what are things that, that are in part of your routine? Cause obviously routine is, is crucial for a player you know, your pregame routine, your weekly ritual, you know, your workouts, all that stuff. But like, what, what's your routine nowadays trying to get to the top of, of your new career field? Early on in the morning, anywhere between five and six, uh, get a good workout in, uh, eat a good breakfast. If anything, it, it checks a few things off your list to feel accomplished. Um, and from there, I kind of set up my day and you know, look at things that I want to accomplish, what I want to get done. Um, I think you talked in previous episodes about, you know, getting every, getting better every day um, makes you feel a little bit more accomplished. So some specific things that, that I really do is try and network and, and kind of get out in the public. So I'm meeting more people. That's, I'm in a, a people in a relationship-based business. So getting out there, getting known, uh, creating new relationships each and every day um, is really important for me. And uh, I think that's in real estate specifically, uh, one thing that is kind of an indicator of, of future success is just knowing a lot of people, um, getting involved with uh, nonprofits locally or, you know, helping out with volunteering and, and things like that. And um, a, a web presence for me is, is trying to get out uh, on Facebook specifically. A lot of the social media sites um, sharing with friends and family and, you know, kind of spider web out and try and get to know more people that way. Yeah. And I think that's hard too, because, you know, I think one of the skills that young people aren't learning nowadays is how to communicate in person. I've been on, you know, in the last like five years, I've been on a lot of dates with, with women and I have a, a great girlfriend now, but you know, where they, that our date was like the first real date that ever been on. I was like, what? Like you're 25. You've never been on a date. And it's just like everyone texts each other and, you know, there's all these, you know, online dating things and, it's just like crazy. And I think it's getting harder and harder and kids aren't learning the skills. I mean, the 14, 15, 16 year olds we know, like they live on their phones, they communicate by Snapchat and it's almost like they, they become paralyzed when they have to talk to people. So I think it's a really underrated skill learning how to network. And, and I'm still learning how to do that myself, you know, because when you're in a room with people you don't know, 
I mean, do you have any strategies? I mean, do you just go, hey, hi, I'm Tom. I'm from Sitecham, New York. Like, I mean, what do you do? Like, how do you kind of break the ice and, and get to know people? I think luckily for me, uh, humor has been a big part of my life. So if I can, you know, make somebody laugh or make somebody smile with something real quick, just by going up to them, it, it kind of breaks the ice and uh, creates uh, the the conversational piece uh, a little bit better for me. So in that sense, um, makes it a little bit easier to meet people. And I know not everybody's got the humor, but you can always. Not everyone's uh, Tom, not everyone's Tom meaning, yeah. I'm no, I'm no comedian, so I, I guess I'll put it that way. You can pretty much go up to anybody and... Um, yeah, if Tom can do just, it, as boring as he is, anyone can do it. <laughs> well, just what we were saying before about other other players on teams. You know, they're, they're the same person as you. So if you come up to them and break the ice with them, you know, they're probably going to talk to you. They'll, they'll reciprocate and, uh, and you'll be able to have a conversation. It's really not as hard as, as some people might think that, you know, have that introverted personality. Um, you can really create a, a lot of long-lasting relationships just by talking to somebody. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point. And that is something that you were always pretty good at. You could just kind of like walk up to people and be like, hey, I'm Tom. And you didn't project like this weird, awkward vibe or, or like a nervous vibe. You're just kind of like, hey, I'm Tom. Like, how are you? And it's a really underrated quality to have that. And I just remember, you know, thinking that exact same sentiment that you just expressed, which is, if I'm here and I'm like kind of nervous and I don't really know how to talk to people, certainly almost everyone else is feeling the same way. You know, even if you're trying to go up to, you know, say like you see the woman of your dreams or the, the man of your dreams and you love to go say hello and, and talk to him. Like, have you ever talked to someone who just like, ew, who are you? You know, like that never happens. Like people are nice, even if they're not interested, they're still overwhelmingly kind. And even if they're not that receptive, like it, the rejection is never really that big of a deal. I know we're not going to get into like dating and all that right now, but you know, just with all that stuff in the real world, if you just say hello, look someone in the eye, you know, shake their hand and just ask about them. You're like, Hey, what do you do? Or, or you know, uh, do you like bagels? <laughs> you know, whatever, whatever it is. It's uh people love to talk about themselves. So if you, if you just ask questions to people, you'll be able to, to get a lot out of anybody. Yeah. And that's, that's a, that's a great point. So, you know, and I, I'm in a, a transition period just like you where, and I don't know that you're as much in a transition as I, but I'm trying to build something and I don't exactly know what it is, but I know that the more people I know, that the more people are aware of, you know, skills I have that are aware of, you know, my values, you know, that's going to help open doors. And it's not about using other people. It's about trying to like genuinely establish connections. So I'm not one who's just going to send like an email trying to leverage, you know, some sort of, you know, I don't know. Oh, hey, I, you know, I have a business. Like you have a business. Let's let's do this. I just want to talk to people that I feel like I could learn something from or have a meaningful conversation with. And those are the people. If you can do that, really have a, a legitimate interaction. Those are the people that are end up going to end up being in your corner. Because I mean, you know, when you when you find someone that you guys not only share similar interests, but you both share a similar vibe or a similar similar passion for you know getting better at something or for you know, the field that you're in or, you know, like sports unites a lot of people, you know, you can go up to someone and have a, a deep conversation about the Eagles or, you know, the Jets or whoever. And, you know, that can be your segue into talking about real estate or, you know, talking about law or talking about marketing or whatever it is that you're doing. But, you know, it's, I think people think of networking sometimes too much as what can, what can you do for me? And like, what can I do for you? Or, if you just like get to know people a little bit and just 
keep it light, right? I mean, that sounds like that's more of your MO. Yeah, the way I look at it is when you meet somebody, uh, you know, I'm not going to lead with, hey, Tom, I'm the real estate agent, or you're you're not going to lead with Dan. I'm Dan Blewett, the, the baseball entrepreneur. You know, you're... You're going to try and lead with, hey, I'm I'm Tom. I'm I'm a real person. Let you know, let's let's chat. Let's you know, let's get to know one another. So, and I feel like people respond to that much better if you if you're kind of leading with, uh, you know, looking for me at least. The the moment I stopped looking at people as a, a walking talking dollar sign was the second I enjoyed my business a lot better and the the better relationships that I established. Yeah, and that's probably how you got your that's how, probably how you won over your wife, right? You walked up and said, "Hello, I'm Tom. I'm a human being." <laughs> I got lucky with her. I must I must have been my hair must have looked real good that day. <laughs> She's like, "Oh yeah, I'm looking for a human being. This sounds like a great fit." No, that, that evolved over time, too. So just like anything else would. There you go. Yeah, Tom Tom grows on you, everybody. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, any any closing thoughts, Tom? No, I uh, I just wanted to say that I'm happy that I'm able to come on the podcast here. I think you're doing some really big things, and I know you got quite a following so far, and um, you got a great story, and you tell it really well. Uh, and I'm looking forward to, to kind of what you got going on in the future um, because I think you can impact – a lot of people, a lot of kids with their baseball careers and and beyond. So thanks for having me on. Yeah, man, I, I appreciate it. My hope is that having people like yourself on the show who can be real with people and, and share your trials and tribulations and your failures and successes, I think that's what's what's going to get more, get more people on the right track and, and help motivate, if that's the right term, you know, just kind of have an impact on people. So I, I appreciate you being on the show and like I said, it's 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 been interesting seeing the way all this stuff has evolved and how you and I have continued to be intertwined. You know, meeting in that bar and sharing that 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 season and and you know culminating with uh, you know my elbow injury and our early exit to that tournament. But you know, I mean, you were a, a huge leader on that team that year. You had a great season at you know at bat, and you never forget how much things go around and how much they come back around. You know, like the sports industry, like all these industries end up being very very small, and it's it's crazy how you know, when you try to treat people the way, right way and you do things the right way, you never know where it might lead you and who might kind of come back into your life as you go. But hey, we appreciate you listening today. We'll look for you back here on the Dear Baseball Gods podcast next week.